Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Today we have a very special extended edition of the programme for you. We're marking the publication of a UBS paper entitled Learning for Life, a guide for philanthropists and changemakers to bring quality education to all on September the 8th, which was United Nations International Literacy Day. The paper explores how to achieve UN Sustainable Development Goal Number 4, which aims to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. Despite progress made to date, huge challenges persist in terms of literacy around the world. Today, close to 800 million young people and adults lack basic literacy skills. Since the late 1960s, International Literacy Day celebrations have taken place each year to remind the global public of the importance of literacy and to push the advance towards a more literate and sustainable society. Learning for Life combines the expertise of sector specialists, philanthropists and changemakers with UBS's 20-plus years of experience in advising clients on making an effective impact. Today on the programme, we'll be hearing from the CEO of the UBS Optimus Foundation. That's the grant-making foundation that offers UBS clients a platform to use their wealth to drive positive social and environmental change. And we'll also meet one of the UBS Global Visionaries, a CEO and co-founder of a pioneering organisation that is already successfully demonstrating how to have exactly this sort of impact. Let's start with Maya Seesvilla, CEO of Optimus Foundation. Maya, a warm welcome to the programme. To start, Maya, I don't think you'd find many people who would dissent from the view that education is critically important. But can you just tell us a bit about why education is key as you and your colleagues at Optimus Foundation see it? Sure. Thank you, Tom. So, I mean, at the individual level, education can really improve health and livelihoods. It can provide a path out of poverty for people who are really much in need of opportunities. But beyond that individual level, the benefits of education go beyond that. Research has shown consistently that education can be a powerful tool for improving outcomes at the macro level, like economic growth, social cohesion, or gender equality. In fact, every additional year of schooling raises earnings by 10% a year. That's quite a powerful statistic. And while social cohesion may feel a little bit abstract, I would say it's something that directly impacts our daily sense of, you know, life is good or maybe not quite so, our feeling of belonging. And a topic that I'm particularly passionate about is how education leads to greater gender equality. In fact, educated girls are 50% more likely to vaccinate their children, twice more likely to educate their own children, earn up to 20% more income, and are more than twice less likely to be HIV positive. That being said, we still have a long way to go because women still make up more than two-thirds of the world's illiterate people. And maybe taking my own example from a relatively privileged situation in Switzerland, just a generation ago, my father had four siblings, his three sisters weren't given the opportunity to get a post-secondary educational, why he and his brother did. So, you know, as obvious as it may seem, it's not just providing education by itself that leads to these positive outcomes, but it's really learning that truly matters. And when we talk about learning, you know, we talk about the acquisition of basic skills like reading, numeracy, digital skills, 
but learning goes much beyond these academic results. Learning should provide children with the capabilities and mindsets to be more adaptable, to be more creative in their thinking about how to solve problems, to set and accomplish goals. So a lot of emphasis right now is actually being placed on the importance of these social and emotional skills because education should lead children to achieve their full potential, not just in these academic settings, but in society and in life. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And I guess to, to pick up on that thread of the broader sort of importance of learning beyond learning for, for its own merits... We, we were all forced, I guess, because of the pandemic to look with fresh eyes at this uh, this issue. It, it really shone a spotlight on exactly that point that you're making, Maya, about the broader importance of learning and all these other social uh, facets. Do you think that the pandemic has actually changed the way that we think about education? Yeah, absolutely. I think suddenly we all have a much greater appreciation and recognition for teachers and schools because we felt it really at a much personal level. So if like me, you're a parent with young children and you struggle to combine work and your children's schooling, you probably know what I'm talking about. And the struggle has been much harder for the most disadvantaged and took a particular toll on mothers. So in 2020, the pressures of juggling work, family, coupled with school closures and job losses in female dominant sectors meant fewer women were participating in the workforce. 113 million women aged 25 to 54 with small children were out of the workforce in 2020 compared to 13 million of their male peers. So 113 versus 13. And more than 370 million children globally missed out on school meals during the school closures. And that was often their only reliable source of daily food really not only that academic piece, but really how it had a, an incredible toll in, in society at large. And the other side effect that we're starting to talk about more is really how it also led to a mental health crisis amongst young people. It really brought upon social isolation and it more than doubled as a result of the pandemic, as a result of children and youth not being able to go to schools. But what that has brought this appreciation is also opportunities for change and, you know, the opportunity to push for innovation. And, and we're really witnessing fantastic and incredible innovations that started in the pandemic and that we want to keep fostering now that we're seeing a, a shift to a post-pandemic world. So for example, one of the partners that we're working with when schools closed in Liberia, what they used is radio as a platform to bring lessons to students at scale. So rising academies, which we support, redesigned their proven curriculum for delivery via radio and SMS. So not only did they bring that schooling to children that weren't able to go to school, but they also were able to weave in safety messages regarding COVID and reached over 10 million children. Another example that I really like is one of our other partners called Educate, which shifted its skilling curriculum also on radio to prepare youth to attain further education and employment. And they completely pivoted their model from an on-the-ground staffing model to one that uses virtual support via phone. And since then, they've actually used that model permanently to actually continue measurably improving learning, soft skills like creativity and grit that led to employment and income improvements. 
So that's on a positive note, but of course the pandemic has also highlighted the enormous need for change that still lies ahead. Inequities have been exacerbated. Um, think about all the children who are unable to access remote learning and were completely deprived from education. Uh, for instance, 1.3 billion school-aged children don't even have access to internet at home. Children that were struggling to learn and didn't have support from their parents at home because maybe themselves were uneducated. So what we need to do is try to build resilient systems that will help us weather future crisis. We need to invest in digital education. We need to further support teachers that engage in remote learning, but we also need to support children that came back to school with very different and varying levels of learning. So we, we, we need to focus on recovering that learning loss that resulted from the pandemic. And we need to, as I mentioned before, really invest in children's social and emotional skills that are key for children to achieve learning goals, but build relationships with their peers, with their teachers, and ultimately be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about some other digital innovators. We'll hear from them a little later in the programme. We're going to be speaking to Joe Wolf from Imagine Worldwide a little later, who I think is a real exemplar of what using tech, harnessing the power of digital can achieve in this space. And to that point, uh, Maya, let me kind of switch to the idea of taking action. And for people who are listening to this saying, look, I want to, to do something. And how could they not, when confronted by some of those statistics that you shared, they're, they're really arresting. They're quite shocking in, in, some, in some ways. There are so many challenges which we've outlined. Where do you start? And perhaps you can tell us a bit about why this learning for life piece, this guide is so important in helping to direct people who want to get involved to act in the most fruitful way possible. Yeah, thanks for that question. And, and really, that's why we created this guide is, is to try and help people to take action. And we structured it around three pillars. One is try and understand the issues. So we know that education is, is very complex. So we, we try to focus on, on understanding some of the core areas, the context of education, access to education, completion and learning. So the context in which children are born into, the context in which children learn, but also the different barriers that children face as they move across their educational trajectories. One, understanding the issue. Two is really identifying and supporting real solutions that deliver. And there we stress building strong foundation. So really, before we can do anything else, before children can do anything else, they need to acquire basic numeracy and literacy skills, because beyond, without that, they won't be able to absorb more complex knowledge. The first 12 years of life are really crucial period to intervene and build those strong foundations for life. The other piece is really trying to improve educational outcomes for everyone. So the importance of focusing on improving learning for those groups of children who are more likely to be excluded and left behind in learning, whether it be because they're affected by conflict, whether it be because they were born in poverty. There are many different reasons why children are, are left behind, but really focusing on, on, on those that need it the most. The other piece is really trying to take what we call a life course perspective. So that means supporting children across their educational journeys, focusing on a key pivotal moments, such as the early years, but also transition across different educational levels. And then looking at how do we provide pathways for children that are out of school, 
and for example, those that were left out of school because of the pandemic, but also others that maybe weren't able to go to school because they were asked by their parents or, or they were, parents needed them to focus on, on working and supporting family income. So how do we support them to reintegrate and catch up in their learning? And finally, what we're also looking at is stressing the importance of measuring the evidence of impact. So making sure that the money that is being spent actually is linked to improving children's learning and then scaling those interventions that, that are actually successful. In terms of concretely taking action, so if you're a, a philanthropist that is, is wondering how do I actually concretely put my, my money into education, we think about a spectrum, uh, starting with strategic philanthropies, grant making, but also looking at investments, whether those are concessionary or investments that generate market returns. And we also stress the importance of other philanthropists, other investors, but also particularly with government, as we know that the education sector in particular, the government plays a, a critical role. It, you know, it's responsibility, it has the resources, it has the reach. And then finally, looking at across sectors, because education on its own will not achieve the lifelong positive impact on, on, on people and on children if we don't address some of the other issues like health or nutrition or poverty. Uh, well, yeah, and I think this cross-sector approach is really uh, key and it's really interesting that there is this focus on that. Can you just talk to us in a little bit more detail about why that cross-sector approach is so important? And I know from talking to uh, other colleagues across UBS that trying to look for these kinds of synergies across all, all portfolios, whether it's, you know, education and also health, trying to like find these joins and work out where one can be most effective is really important. Maybe by way of a couple of examples, you could tell us a bit about why that's so important. Yeah, sure. Actually, let me start with a concrete example. A child that's born in a poor household is likely to carry many disadvantages throughout his life, right? So poor children are more likely to suffer, suffer from poor nutrition and inadequate nutrition during the first years of life actually can lead to poor physical and cognitive development, which means they're unable to learn. And pressures on a household can actually lead to the inability of parents to support formal education for their children, and are these children are less likely to progress through this, the school system. So if we want to improve learning, we need to address health and we need to address poverty. We need to ensure that children have the right nutrition, that mothers in the early years have access to prenatal care, can provide livelihoods for their children, and can be supported to get involved in their children's learning. So we increasingly are looking for synergies across our portfolios in education, in health, and in child protection so that children can be healthy enough to concentrate and learn. Um, one of the, the, the programs that we're supporting is called Healthy Learners. It actually trains teachers as community health workers so that they can actively monitor and respond to the health needs of school going children. And so as you can imagine, that work became crucial during the pandemic. Healthy learners supported the Zambian government to manage schools. They were able to scale their model to 105 public primary schools and enabled Zambia to become one of the first countries in the continent to reopen schools because they not only addressed the learning crisis, but also integrated the health crisis as part of their model. Well, yeah, and I want to ask you about 
scale and scaling uh, some of these programs. It's something I'm going to ask Joe Wolf about later, Maya, as well. How do you ensure that you're best supporting really effective programs to reach more children? Because there are, to use some of those cliches, you know, there's always some kind of lower hanging fruit, but to really make a, a meaningful impact that's enduring and that is on a scale that makes a real difference. Presumably that question about effective scaling has to be right at the top of the pile of issues when you're beginning to look at what you're actually going to try and do. Yeah, absolutely. Scaling is key. And scaling, in order to get to scale, we believe that partnerships are critical because they bring you know, different resources, expertise and networks that allow us to work together towards a common goal. In the education sector, as I mentioned, it's key to work with government because they have the responsibility, the resources and the reach to roll out solutions at scale. And while scaling is not easy, it can be done. So it's looking for principles that are universal and can be adapted to the particular needs and constraints of different contexts. For example, one of the programs that we've partnered with, it's called Teaching at the Right Level. It's targeting instructions to children's learning levels. So rather than follow a general curriculum for everybody in the classroom, it is making sure that it is targeted to different groups of children that have different levels. So that can, you know, that can be replicated in in many different contexts, but the way of doing that varies. So in some settings, it's the, you know, the teacher workforce that are constrained in some ways, in some contexts, you're not working with a teacher workforce, but you're, it's more feasible if you do it through volunteers or tutors. So again, depending on context, it can be adapted, but the, the fundamental piece is, is one that can be replicated and scaled across the world. The other, I think, interesting piece to, to note is that Scaling should not be thought of only as the final stage in delivering impact. Scaling should also be integrated right from the beginning as you're looking at pilots, making sure that those are designed with scalability in mind. And we find that that's something that has been really critical in ensuring that we have the ability to scale everything that we do so that we, with our philanthropic capital, don't necessarily support the programs to deliver at scale, but we support the programs and interventions that have the potential to scale and make sure that they are set up in a way with the right partnerships, with the right kind of model that allows that scalability. And one example of a critical piece that allows for scale is technology. It's a powerful tool to scale learning. And that's why we're partnering with an organization like Imagine Worldwide. And I know you'll be speaking to them later today. Uh, we will be speaking to them in just a moment. Maya Zisfila, thank you so much for, for being with us on the programme. Thank you. Well, let's turn next to Imagine Worldwide and speak to a man with some highly relevant first-hand experience and whose sights are set on further scaling his innovative and groundbreaking solutions. Joe Wolf is the co-founder and CEO of Imagine Worldwide. Their approach marries real simplicity... It's cost-effective, costing as it does just 7 to $8 per child per year, with the compelling fact that it operates within existing systems, so it's massively scalable, and we've heard already how important that is. Joe Wolf, a warm welcome to the programme. Before we get into the detail of Imagine Worldwide, Joe, and how it works, 
Let's start with a little bit about your story first. Tell us how you came to be doing what you are doing. When you were working, you know, in finance, back in Goldman's for a time, later in, in venture philanthropy, was this where you knew you'd end up? Or did you, Joe, hit a point where you wanted to change things up and make a difference in a different way? I was very fortunate to... Um, starting with education, my parents afforded me a phenomenal opportunity to attend um, great academic institutions. And with that came some excellent work opportunities. Uh, my career in finance was primarily as an investor. Uh, as an investor, you know, I studied companies for a living, understood uh, unit level economics, the way businesses work, the way compensation systems are tied to performance, the way allocation of capital and return on invested capital can drive uh, performance of companies, a phenomenal toolbox for what I'm doing now. And along the way, just became really interested in youth development. How do we scaffold young kids, primarily lower income uh, populations? You know, what are the tools that they need in order to be able to realize their potential? How do we get them, you know, into high school, through high school, into college, through college, into career? Uh, and so started getting very involved with um, a host of different youth development organizations that ranged from tutoring to mentoring to summer trips to internships, different types of opportunities that you could provide that, that helped to change the trajectory of these children. And, and what I found was two things. Number one, they can be very effective. You know, there's so much potential in all of these children. There's so much talent uh, and really giving them a couple of opportunities can allow the, the, the boulder that's in front of them to be removed in a way that they can realize their own uh, potential. But what I also realize is that if you intervene kid by kid by kid by kid, the cost of those interventions are prohibitively expensive to be able to realize scale. You see you know, very large budgets from nonprofits serving very few number of children, and they're doing it effectively, but it's not a path towards scale. And so I told my partners, the more I got into this, the more I realized that this is actually what my calling is. This is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to do with my life is to is to use what I was given and to help um, bring forth positive change for um, large numbers of, of, of people that don't have the same opportunities. And so I told my business partners that I would be leaving in five years to do nonprofit work. That allowed me to transition the business I was in, but it also gave me an incredible learning ground to try to figure out what I wanted to do next. And along that way, I, I got introduced somewhat randomly to an experiment that was happening within the New York Department of Education around the use of technology to personalize and customize learning. And it was the thing that I saw that said, you know what, this is going to be the transformational shift. Um, when you look at how technology has transformed industry, added productivity, added measurement, added efficiencies, and you look at education, and it was pretty much untapped. Um, education looks a lot like it did 75 to 100 years ago in a, in a factory-based model based on age. Uh, and so I kind of went all in. Uh, I ended up joining um, a half a dozen boards all related to the use of technology in education. Some were operating companies, some were investing companies, some were advocacy companies, uh, and along the way, decided that this would be my path, which led to the organizations that I created here domestically focused on technology uh, and then eventually Imagine. 
Well, yeah, and let's talk then a little bit more about what Imagine actually does and, and how it works. And we can tell from your last remarks, it's this heavy emphasis, of course, on the power of tech-enabled learning, how that can make real, meaningful differences on these kind of foundational skills that you've already talked around. What I find interesting is exactly what you just said there, Joe, this idea of having to keep this laser focus on scalability. I don't know, how much is that a difficulty, a challenge to try and make these innovations, deliver these outcomes, but always be thinking scale? Because I can imagine quite often the easier option would have been to pursue that more inefficient almost pathway where you get kind of immediate bang for your buck, but it's not very efficient. Do you view the scalability thing as, I don't know, does it does it work in, in opposition to some of the other ambitions? Or for you, is it all a very holistic issue? So the the two things that technology does, and, and I see technology as a as a tool to achieve certain purposes, not as a strategy in and of itself. But the two things that technology allows is, number one, the personalization and customization of learning. We all learn at our own pace. We all learn in our own ways with our own preferences. If you were a teacher in a classroom you know, in the United States with, with 20 to 40 children, it is very, very challenging to differentiate instruction across those 20 to 40 children. When we move into the context that we serve, very often it's 100 to 200 children in that context. So you may have four or five years of variance in the aptitude of each of those children. And so you are a teacher trying to be relevant to 100 kids at the same time. It is, it is impossible. So what the technology can do is to personalize and customize learning. It's very good at using analytics to figure out where we all are and to allow for us to progress at our own pace and based on mastery of content rather than simply the time that we're, we're sitting in a seat. That is an enormous transformation that can only be achieved via technology. The second is the democratization of content. And so one of the real, I think, Achilles heels of education globally is that we're all very captive to the teacher that shows up in a given classroom. And you know, even my children that go to great schools, you know, they'll say, I love math this year. And very often that's because I love my teacher. I had a great teacher. Oh, I don't like math next year. Same thing. I had a teacher that I didn't connect with or was less uh, dynamic for whatever reason. So what technology allows is for us to democratize content. Let's take the very best content that exists. Let's make it very personalized for the progression of the individual child. And let's have the teacher be the, the coach and the mentor that works with individual children around individual issues. It, those are the skills that, that only humans can do. The technology is not going to be able to do that. And so allowing the technology to do what it does best, allowing the humans to do what they do best and blending the two, number one, is a much more effective modality to deliver quality education. But to your point, it's also what scales. It's extremely scalable to use technology uh, to be able to take on this personalization, this customization, this democratization, and to do so in a way that can really start to get at the, the masses. There's a, there's a half a billion children in the world, 500 million kids that are not literate and numerate. And in my opinion, there's either no amount of capital that we can invest in the current system to get there, or it's going to take um, you know decades, if not centuries, to get there. Um, so technology injects 
efficiencies and productivities. It's massively scalable. It's evidence-based. You're able to collect a huge amount of data, which then starts to allow you to understand what's working and why for what types of children, uh, and it can scale. And I am, I've been called a scale junkie. I've been <laughs> said that I'm obsessed with scale. Absolutely, I care about what is happening at the unit level individually in a classroom. But I also think that if we're going to tackle the magnitude of this problem, we have to have solutions that are, that are scalable operationally, uh, financially, sustainability. Well, yeah, and another point, which I guess is maybe, well, it, it might be counterintuitive in some in some quarters, maybe in investment banking or in wealth management, and that's to, to share, to share your findings, to share the learnings driven by this research and analysis that you've spoken about, whether that's the software developments, whether that's learnings that arrive through your partnerships with people who are implementing some of these programs. That's very important, isn't it, to ensure a continuity of progress and again does it sometimes take an extra effort to compel partners those you're working with to always keep that front in mind because in certain businesses often to to share or to disseminate the the hard-fought learnings that you've made is viewed as anathema sure i mean i think this is one of the beauties of of being a non-profit Uh, i obviously came from the for-profit world and i think the the capital markets play a, a very valuable role in a whole host of different societal benefits, but being a nonprofit puts the the child at the center of what we do. Um, it is the only thing that matters at the end of the day is the experience for the child. And if we can share what we're learning uh, to our implementing partners, to our software partners, to peers within our organization, peers outside of, of the ecosystem, uh, we are wide open to doing that sharing. And, and, and the more we all benefit, the, the bigger the, the eventual impact. Technology also plays, plays a big role here. Um, you know, very often in education, you, you build a school, you put books in the school, you come back 10 years later and everything is just deteriorated. It's just worse because the instructional materials have, have fallen apart. The building may be having challenges. Whereas in technology, if we're really deliberate around what we call our continuous improvement cycle, it's been called the flywheel in, in our industry, but basically using data to generate learnings and have those learnings pass back both to the implementing organizations and the software companies who are then incorporating those learnings so that the entire network is both contributing to and benefiting from the collective wisdom that is accruing uh, is incredibly powerful. We, we are we are very convinced that when we do an implementation, when we come back three, four, five years later, it's going to be radically better than where it started because of this continuous improvement loop. Um, these innovations are our early stage. That we're just at the very cusp of what's possible, and through using that data and using research and then sharing what it is we're learning, there's just an incredible opportunity to to propel the efficacy of these solutions forward. Well, yeah, and that was another question I was going to ask you, Joe, which was a bit about, obviously, it's very child-directed. The child is at the centre and those those movements are fundamental. But, of course, it does go beyond the student learning gains. You've already spoken a little about that. There are infrastructure gains, capacity benefits. There's a whole awareness piece, isn't there, around the advance of these technologies in driving broader, deeper progress and change on a systemic level, processes that, that change. I mean, that must be some, something so exciting that you can not only deliver on this very fundamental challenge that you're obviously so passionate about, but there are all these corollary benefits as well. 
I mean, it's a great question. It's a really, really thoughtful observation. I agree 100%. Number one, there is an impact at the unit level. So on that classroom, the interaction between uh, the teacher and the children, what the children are learning. And what we see with these solutions is, is number one, profound improvements in literacy and numeracy. Obviously, that's what we're trying to do. We're seeing secondary benefits, which in a lot of ways are just as important. We're seeing attendance improving. We're seeing behavior improving. We're seeing attitude source learning improving. We're seeing stress management improving. All of those things are happening because the children are more engaged. And and I have to say that when I visit schools and we talk to teachers and we talk to administrators, they actually tend to bring up those secondary benefits first that, wow, it's amazing what's happening here. The tablet program is, is, is a carrot and a stick. We're using it as a way to, to, to help you know, mobilize better, better behavior, um, to keep kids in school, to have them showing up more often and to stay longer. And all of those things are huge. We actually was just in Malawi um, a couple of months ago and, and one, one administrator was saying that they're seeing a lot of kids transferring from, from local schools into their school because of the tablet program. So there's all kinds of these, these secondary benefits. And then to your point, which is, which is a really thoughtful observation, the starting point in most of these schools that we work is, is you have no electricity, you have no technology, you have no ICT capacity at any level to use technology. And while we focus on foundational literacy and numeracy and the associated benefits, what we also are doing is we're electrifying a building, we're putting in tablets, we're building that ICT capacity at the teacher, at the administrator, at the zone, the district, the, the federal levels of the systems, so that whatever it is that system wants to do next, whether that's different content or older ages or you know anything that, that technology can do, your starting point is radically improved because of that electrification, because of that, that core ICT capacity. So I think we're just at the very beginnings of what the ripple impact will be of what we're doing, but it's very, very exciting. Well, yeah, and I want to ask you, perhaps finally, Joe, about another exciting aspect for you, uh, which must serve also as a kind of amazing vindication of that kind of leap of faith that you took personally, which we started by talking about. And that's the, the role and the importance of broader collaboration, partnerships and, and recognition. Of course, I'm talking to you, you're a, a global visionary as recognised by UBS and that comes with access to the kinds of extraordinary networks that the likes of UBS can help uh, to connect you with. I guess it underscores two things, not only the the fundamental importance, the, the critical, the necessity of collaboration, but also the power of partnerships more broadly to to really drive progress. That, that must be thrilling for you. I guess it throws up its own challenges, but it must be something extraordinary when you look back at the start of your journey to where you've got to now. Well, collaborations are, are absolutely required in order to make any progress towards these you know, seemingly insurmountable challenges. Um, I'll give a quick example. The country that we've all been operating in the longest is, is Malawi. Malawi is uh, one of the least resourced educational systems on the planet. There have been uh, approximately 250 schools, around 225,000 children that have had exposure to these learning solutions. And there is a consortium of partners and collaborators that have worked together to make that happen in partnership with the Ministry of Education. The Ministry of Education is now committed to scaling this intervention to all 3.5 million standard one through four learners over the next six years. And so there is a, a great collaboration that started the work, did incredible research, 
showed efficacy gains, showed scalability in terms of operational scalability, financial scalability. The ministry is now committed to owning, operating, and funding over the long term this intervention to be one of the first countries in the world to do a countrywide scale out that will be owned and operated by the government. None of this happens without collaboration with the government. None of this happens without collaboration between implementing partners and software partners. And again, really at the cusp of something that will be very special. Uh, we also have had great collaborations with our funders. I mean, UBS has been an incredible partner for us. This Global Visionary Program has been really one of its kind. There's a lot of organizations that talk about using their platform, their bully pulpit to propel social good. Very few of them walk the walk. And we've been just blown away with, uh, with UBS, the access they've given us to their people, to their experts, to their clients, uh, the thoughtfulness with which they've put forth us um, in the media with interviews like this. We're just really blessed. We're a small team. We've not invested heavily in things like you know, PR or marketing or fundraising. Uh, and so we really have in front of us a, a problem that is solvable. Uh, we have solution that is massively scalable, that's evidence-based through randomized controlled trials, that is serving the most marginalized children on the planet. And we need partnerships in order to really mobilize the right level of capital, both financial and human capital, to get where we need to be. Well, yeah, and a very last thought, Joe. What does that look like, that future? I mean, I often ask global visionaries and others doing this kind of work, you know, is the only limit the scale of, of your ambition? I mean, presumably there are some more quotidian challenges that you will continue to need to, to address. But is this one of those examples where, you know, the potential upside is just so vast, it's unimaginable that we have to be that bold in our thinking and not be afraid of tackling these seemingly insurmountable problems? This is absolutely a solvable problem. The only real constraint is our will and our capital. This is a completely solvable problem. There's absolutely no reason why we in, in 2022 cannot deliver every child on the planet the opportunity to realize their potential through education. We have to, in our opinion, use technology to get there. We have to have great teachers. We have to have improvements in teacher training. We have to have great instructional materials. But we also need to have technology to be able to alleviate some of the pressures that are on these, these systems. Uh, classrooms with 100 people, teacher training that is inadequate, teacher absenteeism issues, lack of instructional materials. All these things are structural. They're systemic. And there's half a billion children that are impacted by them. So obviously we have to take on a number of different challenges. But I really do fundamentally believe that if we have the will and if we have the capital that this can be solved and it can be solved at scale. Joe Wolf of Imagine Worldwide. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda every week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about the work of Joe and his partners in that fantastic mission. Just visit imagineworldwide.org now. There's also lots more information at UBS.com. For more about all the global visionaries in the UBS programme, you can head there and search Global Visionaries. You can also search education at UBS.com to discover a wealth of other resources, research and inspiration. In the meantime, of course, as ever, you can listen to this and every episode of the programme again. And you can find the archive of other brilliant visionaries at monocle.com and across all good audio platforms. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.